Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Jonathan on Money. Happy New Year, Shana Tova, and welcome to 2024. This is episode number 37 of Jonathan on Money, my first episode of the year. For all the new listeners this year, Jonathan on Money explores various timely topics in personal finance and their intersection with Jewish life. Every week, we cover various topics in investing, behavioral finance, estate planning, financial planning, taxes, insurance, and more. Each show is packed with practical, actionable information and is a must-listen for all investors looking to be more intentional with their money. It's also a great source of content for practitioners in the field of wealth management. This includes trust and estates attorneys, accountants, tax advisors, financial planners, insurance professionals, trust officers, and portfolio managers. All that being said, if you have a friend, colleague, financial advisor, your lawyer, accountant, who you think may benefit from listening to the show, feel free to pass it along. Also, if you can subscribe and rate this show on Apple or Spotify, I will greatly appreciate that since it will help other personal finance enthusiasts find the show as well. Okay, so my talking points this week will discuss an evergreen topic that is always important, which is regarding retirees needing to pay taxes in retirement and six smart ways to reduce them. We'll also discuss an important quote from Steve Martin about money. Who, whoever thought that a comedian would even have something profound to say about money, but the truth is comedians are some of the most profound people in our society, a type of philosopher, if you will. And as always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. With that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So the core focus of retirement planning tends to be on the accumulation of assets to live live out one's golden years. This includes regularly contributing to retirement accounts and investing those funds appropriately. Although this is unquestionably a crucial first step, an important second consideration that many investors neglect is ways to minimize expenses in retirement, which will allow one's nest egg to last longer. One major continuing expense is a client's tax liability. Despite no longer having a paycheck from an employer, retirees still need to pay taxes on whatever income they generate from the retirement accounts and other forms of income. In this week's talking points, I'm going to discuss several strategies that may help advisors work with clients to plan for the continuing taxes in retirement. The first point is don't waste low tax years. It's important to capitalize on years with low or no income. It makes no difference whether it was due to unemployment, a bad uh, a bad year financially, or another reason. The key is to plan for your long-term tax liability and not just focus on the short-term, uh, short-term, and on the short-term years. During a low tax year, investors should consider converting pre-tax dollars to a Roth IRA. This will require paying taxes on the on the conversion amount, but the long-term tax deferred growth and the ability to withdraw funds tax-free can be beneficial in retirement. Additionally, an IRA owner can proactively take distributions out of their account in low tax years. Remember, required minimum distributions or RMDs are the bare minimum one is required to take. If someone is in an advantageous tax situation, taking more than what is required can minimize taxes on a distribution later. 
Consider a, a dynamic withdrawal strategy. It's common for investors to have multiple accounts with varied, ta varied tax statuses by the time they retire. Funds should be withdrawn in a way to help minimize one's tax liability. The rule of thumb is to first withdraw money from a taxable account, next withdraw funds from a tax-deferred account like a traditional IRA, finally withdraw tax-free funds from a Roth IRA. This process will allow retirees to avoid withdrawing their tax advantage funds, allowing funds to grow longer without paying taxes. <clears throat> However, there are always exceptions to this rule. A dynamic withdrawal strategy allows for modification as one's personal finance situation changes. For example, if someone is concerned about being bumped up in a higher tax bracket one year, it may make sense to take funds from a Roth IRA in that year. The key is to evaluate your situation every year to avoid the higher tax bracket. Next idea is Qualified Charitable Distributions, or QCDs. A QCD is a direct transfer of funds from an IRA to a qualified charity. QCDs can be counted towards satisfying one's RMDs, but unlike regular withdrawals from an IRA, the donor doesn't pay tax on these dollars. This will help keep retirees' taxable income lower since the distribution doesn't count towards adjusted gross income. The maximum annual amount that can qualify for a QCD is currently $100,000. Next idea is rebalancing using a donor-advised funder, a DAF. A DAF is an investment account whose purpose is supporting charitable organizations. A donor is eligible for an immediate tax deduction when contributing cash, securities, or other assets to a DAF. Those funds can then be invested for tax-free growth until the donor decides to distribute them. Grants can be made to any qualified public charity right away or over time. A DAF is, a particularly, use, is particularly useful when an investor owns a security with no cost basis or a highly appreciated stock. In these scenarios, a capital gains tax liability can be avoided by moving the position to a DAF. If you're looking to rebalance your portfolio and are also charitably inclined, you can trim a large position, avoid paying capital gains tax, move it to a DAF, and potentially lock in a tax deduction for the, the contribution. Next is being mindful of the still working exemption. The still working exemption allows RMDs to be delayed for a retirement plan from an employer for whom someone is still employed. Therefore, this doesn't apply to an old 401k at a previous employer, nor does it apply to IRAs, SEPs, and simple IRAs. When you use the still working ex exception, RMDs begin in the year you separate from service. Your required date to begin taking RMDs will be April 1 of the year after separation from service. The definition of still working has no official specifics from the IRS. Consequently, working part-time may be sufficient to take advantage of this strategy. It's important to note that you can't use the exception if you own more than 5% of the company for which you are still working. And finally, there's geographic arbitrage. Geographic arbitrage is when someone earns money in a part of the country with a high cost of living and high taxes and then retires to a less expensive part of the country with lower taxes. This may allow retirees to get the benefit of big city income and enable those dollars to last longer in a cheaper and more tax advantageous part of the country. I frequently tell my clients that one of the best ways to save money is by being more thoughtful on where you decide to live. For example, if an individual worked their entire life as a lawyer at a big firm in New York City or San Francisco, they may want to consider taking their lifetime of earnings and moving somewhere with no state income tax like Florida, Texas, or Nevada. This type of relocation can make a meaningful difference in the cash flow of every retiree.
Okay, those are the talking points this week. And as a reminder, you can be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at parkbridgewealth.com forward slash newsletter. We're currently at 7,500 subscribers and growing, so feel free to sign up and invite friends as well. Now for this week's quote, which is from the legendary comedian, Steve Martin, who said, I love money. I love everything about it. I bought some pretty good stuff, got me a $300 pair of socks, got a fur sink, an electric dog polisher, a gasoline-powered turtleneck sweater, and of course, I bought some dumb stuff too. So this may sound like a joke, which it kind of is, but really it offers a profound understanding of what people spend money on. All the things people buy, more often than not, they're worthless in the end. So instead of use instead of using money to buy things with you should use money to buy things with true meaning and have true value. But what has true value? I would argue that experiences and items that facilitate great experiences with loved ones are generally the best ways to spend money. But everyone is different. The key is being intentional with how you spend your hard-earned dollars to create a life of meaning that you can look back on and be quite proud of how you spent your time and money. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. Why are Yidim so good at making money? First, not all Yidim are good at making money. So this is an overgeneralization that some people might find triggering. However, there is no denying that Jews have managed to excel in many different industries. I did not study this trend, but from being in business for 17 years, I've noticed some things within the Jewish community that lend itself to earning a higher income. They include one, community. Jewish life revolves around community, going to shul, holidays, births, deaths, etc. There are always reasons to get together and eat. Given these natural communities Jews develop due to their lifestyle, it makes their network larger than the average person. Furthermore, even if you don't have a large media community, you can immediately establish a connection with any Jew around the world despite, of cult despite culture, language, and religious differences. This is very accommodating to grow a business. Two, ongoing learning. Many Jews love to learn for the sake of learning. I believe some folks would call that learning lishma. It's rare to find a Jew who doesn't like consuming information. On a recent trip to Israel, two passengers made an impression on me. One guy brought a special flashlight that he can wear around his neck and stack in a stack of books so he can read throughout the 12-hour flight back to New York. A second dude brought a stack of svarim and was pounding Torah for literally 10 hours straight. While I admire the stamina of these Yidim, the reality is they are not the exception. Jews have an insatiable thirst for knowledge that allows them to get ahead. Three, sense of humor. Everyone has their own personality, but I found that even the most intense Jew can let their guard down and keep bits of it. When I was in the business school, I noticed this also. There were many people that were good students. I was not one of those people. However, few people were able to present in front of the class in a way that was as engaging and entertaining as the Yidden. They can kibitz on the topic with the class, with the professor, and it was done artfully. This sense of humor is what has sustained us as a people for 5,000 years. It also allows us to more seamlessly build rapport with other people in business. Four, Jews are smart. I know I am stereotyping here, but Jews are smart. You can start by looking up the list of Jewish Nobel Prize winners, but that is just scratching the surface. Look at any major industry and you will find a top dog who's a Yid. It's hard to compete with the Yiddish cup. I'm not saying plenty of Gentiles don't have the same traits, but these four characteristics are common amongst our people. 
Next question. I'm looking for a new financial advisor, and a few people I interviewed told me their targeted returns based on the strategies they recommend. It's very compelling. Other people don't give any targeted returns. Should this matter? Frankly, the people who don't try to pitch you based on returns are more compelling. No one knows what the future will hold, and certainly nobody knows what investments or asset classes will perform. I would sooner look for an advisor that has a process for managing wealth. A process can withstand the test of time, can, be, can still be effective in bad markets, has a higher probability of leading to growing one's wealth than gambling on a few investments that some slick advisor is trying to pitch you. Stay away from anyone that tries to pitch you on returns. You will likely end up disappointed. <clears throat> Next question. Since past performance is not a fair determinant of future results, does looking at past performance mean anything? Yes. If we know how the optimal portfolio behaved in the past, we can better understand how a similar kind of portfolio might behave in the future. This doesn't mean we will now we know what the returns will be, but it allows investors to understand the relationship between various asset classes, which is one component of designing a prudent portfolio. Be mindful that this is particularly true about, basket, about public markets. I believe in private investments, this theory holds less weight since there are less players in the game and the forces of predictability of larger market is not as applicable. In private markets, a lot depends on the specific deal, deal manager, fee structure, industry, proper use of leverage, where we are in the economic cycle, and other factors. My son is engaged to be married. Mazel tov. His fiance comes from a moderately wealthy family, and she spends money like a drunken sailor. That ain't good. The young couple plans to pursue careers that are not high paying. Is this marriage doomed? Not necessarily, but I do think they need a reality check. Unless you or the Mahatanim plan to support their, their lifestyle, <clears throat> then they need to understand that their lifestyle will need to be modified so they don't end up on the streets. You can start by making it clear that you won't be supporting them. Then it's up to the in-laws to do the same thing. In life, we all have to make our own decisions and live with the consequences. That may sound harsh, but it's better to get this message across now before it's too late. If the young couple does, doesn't appreciate this warning, they will have a rough few years until they appreciate the way money works. It's better to make mistakes when you are young and have time to recover than when you are middle-aged and no longer have the time to rebound. Can someone have a simple IRA from one company and a 401k from another company and contribute to both in the same year? Are there limitations? Yes, an employee may participate in a simple IRA plan, even if, if they he or she also participates in a plan that is sponsored by a different employer for the same year. However, the employee's salary reduction contributions are subject to the limitations of Section 402G, which is $23,000 this year if you are under 50 years old. What are your thoughts on SMAs or separately managed accounts? I believe they're also known as managed funds. Firstly, for those who are not in the know, a separately managed account is a portfolio of assets managed by a professional investment firm. SMAs are targeted towards wealthy but not ultra-wealthy retail investors with at least six figures to invest. SMAs supposedly offer more customization and investment strategy than mutual funds do by offering direct ownership of securities and supposedly tax advantages over mutual funds. All that seems appealing to some. However, the reality is it's all smoke and mirrors. SMAs are not proven to offer better returns than mutual funds or ETFs unless the data is cherry-picked by a company that is in the business of selling SMA strategies. They are not necessarily more tax-efficient. Furthermore, owning every individual security instead of owning the mutual funds or ETF makes your statement unruly 
and tax time far more cumbersome. The appeal of SMAs and investors may feel special that they have access to something exclusive. Here's a newsflash. SMAs are nothing special and neither, neither are the people that own them. They're widely available and offer no benefit to investors. The only benefit is to the people who sell them, who may make more money by pushing these products, allow them to do less work because they outsource it to a third party. And from a marketing perspective, it's helpful to sell exclusivity. Everyone, wa everyone wants to feel special, especially moderately wealthy investors, but that ain't a reason to use SMAs. I have cash cushion and I'm maxing out my retirement account. I have more money and, and have just been laddering CDs and bonds. Is this an optimal way to manage these funds? So a CD ladder is a strategy where you invest in several certificates of deposits with staggered maturities. With this strategy, you'll redeem funds more often than if you put all your savings in a long-term CD so you can reinvest funds as the CDs mature. Whether or not this is a good strategy depends on your time horizon. If you need money in a few years, you are not buying CDs beyond this few-year time horizon, then it can make sense as an alternative to a money market account, assuming the yield is more attractive, which it may not be which means you are wasting your time and energy and not getting anything out of it. If you you have a longer time horizon, say 10 years or longer, maybe even seven to 10 years, depending on the situation, then this is a bad strategy. You will probably out, not outpace inflation and may even lag inflation. This means you are effectively losing money with this approach. Remember, before investing, it's imperative to clearly define what your goals are. Simply implementing a strategy because you heard that it's a good idea or conservative may set you up for failure. Next question is, I know I need to invest, but I am very concerned about eating into my principal's losses, so I stick to CDs and money market accounts. Will this approach work for money I won't need for about 15 years? First, I'm not sure what you mean by eating into principal. All investments fluctuate in value. So if you're looking for no fluctuation, you will need to just own a money market account or an illiquid alternative investment that gives you the illusion of not moving up and down in value until you actually need the money. No, yes, CDs do fluctuate in value too. Any product with a secondary market will experience volatility. Similar to the previous question, you stick to CDs, you will be eating into principal by losing buying power. This is almost a guarantee if you buy CDs for a 15-year time horizon. If you want to maintain your buying power and grow your money, you need to make investments that will outpace inflation. This also means seeing your portfolio fluctuate in value. If portfolio volatility is too much for you to stomach, then you need to come to terms with a life of investment mediocrity. I want to, I want to be a stay-at-home mom. My husband doesn't want me to be one. We live within our means. How do I convince him? This sounds like a marital question, not a financial one. However, this won't stop me from weighing in. The first thing I'll say is you need to get on the same page. You are one household, one unit, partners in life, and you need to find the situation that works for both of you. And this may involve some compromise on both sides. The next thing I'll say is you need to determine if you have enough money to maintain your lifestyle, save for the future, or not stress over money if you do quit your job. And the answer is yes, you can do all those things on my husband's income. Then it may be helpful to illustrate that the math works. If the math works, then the only two reason, logical reasons I could think of for your husband's to resist is one, for your mental health reasons. Many people are in a rush to stop working when in reality, they discount all the important elements of a good day's work. This includes intellectual stimulation and being socially engaged, structuring your day, setting goals and achieving them and so forth. 
If you can clearly demonstrate that you will that you still have plenty of money, that you also have plenty of things to do to contribute to the household, then it may convince him that it is in fact worthwhile for you to leave the workforce. And full disclosure, I believe that being a full-time mom to young children is more than a full day's work, but I'm not your husband and I'm not the one that needs convincing. Okay, and the second one is your husband's mental health reasons. If your husband has a job that is highly cyclical in nature or the income varies greatly year to year, then he may want the security of knowing you are a dual income household. If times are rough for him, at least you have an income coming in. Both of these are valid concerns that need to be discussed. Perhaps a professional can help facilitate a conversation or perhaps the above framework that I've just discussed may help your dialogue. Either way, I'd like to end with a bracha to you. May you and your husband come to an understanding in the near term and continue to build your Baisnema on Bishrel. Amen, Sela, Vaed, Kenihi, Ratzon. Okay, that is it for Financial Shilas this week. Feel free to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode. You can reach me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com. Well, with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any questions, any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's a spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.